In the early morning hours of November 15, 1959, seven lives intersected on the plains of western Kansas. Herb Clutter was, by all accounts, a reasonably well-to-do farmer in the small town of Holcomb, Kansas. He was, according to most people, a pillar of the community. He employed 18 farmhands and paid good wages. He was in church every Sunday. He was very quiet, and his word was his bond. Everyone in Holcomb respected Herb Clutter. Or did they? Bonnie Clutter, Herb's wife, raised four children. The two oldest girls had graduated from high school and lived on their own. Her son and youngest daughter still lived at home. Bonnie had battled depression for years. Nancy Clutter was 16 in 1959. She was a vivacious girl, active in school plays and 4-H. She also took on a lot of Bonnie's household duties, cooking, cleaning, managing the family. Kenyon Clutter was 15. He was not as outgoing as his sister. Due to his bad eyesight, he couldn't participate in sports. He spent a lot of time by himself working on electronics. He wanted to be an engineer. Perry Smith was born in Nevada. His parents were divorced, and Smith was raised by an alcoholic mother who died when he was 13. Then he was sent to an orphanage. He joined the Merchant Marines and later the Army and served in the Korean War. He was honorably discharged and turned to a life of petty crime before ending up in the Kansas State Penitentiary. The roads to Holcomb were tightening. Dick Hickok was born in Kansas City, Kansas, and graduated from Olathe High School. He wanted to go to college but couldn't afford it. In 1950, he was severely injured and disfigured in a car accident. He, too, turned to small crimes. His specialty was passing hot checks, and he, too, ended up in the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing. Our last character was born in New Orleans. Truman Capote's parents divorced when he was four. He was sent to live with his mother's relatives in Monroeville, Alabama. He taught himself to read and write before he started first grade. He began writing stories while in grade school. His mother eventually remarried and moved to Connecticut. Truman graduated from college and began selling short stories. By 1958, he had published Breakfast at Tiffany's and three other stories which was eventually made into a movie. Then, on a fall day in 1959, he picked up the New York Times and on the back page read a story about a murder in rural Kansas. So mix yourself that classic 1950s cocktail, Tom Collins, and hear our tale of the disparate lives that collided in a small Kansas town. The Road to Holcomb in Cold Blood. Our tale begins in a cell in the Kansas State Penitentiary in Larned, Kansas. Dick Hickok was talking shop with Floyd Wells, another inmate. Wells tells him that ten years ago he had worked as a farmhand out in western Kansas. The farmer, he told Hickok, didn't trust banks. 
He had a safe in his house and always kept at least $10,000 in it. The farmer's name was Herb Clutter. Harry Smith was released from prison in 1958. He was Dick's cellmate, but Dick, still in prison, couldn't stop thinking about that safe. It would be an easy score, he thought. He could steal the safe and go to Mexico and start a new life. No more just getting by, writing hot checks for minimal money. Maybe he could open a garage, but he needed an accomplice. In 1959, around the 1st of November, he was released, and he looked up his old cellmate, Harry Smith, who was in Kansas City. He told him about the safe, and they agreed it would be easy money. So on November 14th, they got in their black Oldsmobile and drove across the state to the small farming community of Holcomb. They located the house. It was the nicest home in Holcomb. Three stories, two and a half baths. Holcomb was a small, tight-knit community, the kind of place where no one locked their doors. And on the morning of November 15th, the front door was unlocked. Smith and Hickok walked right in. Smith and Hickok were never diagnosed, but many people who looked back on that night and their relationship felt that Smith was schizophrenic and also had issues dating back to his relationship with the father who abandoned him. Dick Hickok apparently was a pathological liar and a masochist. When they entered the house, they had a hunting knife, a flashlight, and a shotgun. They awakened Herb Clutter and took him to the basement. They tied his arms over his head and hung him from a pipe in the ceiling. They demanded to know where the safe was. Herb didn't know what they were talking about. He, he told them, I don't have a safe. Kenyon was already in the basement. He had gone downstairs to read or work on an electronic project. So they found him and they hogtied him to a couch and gagged him. They tied Bonnie in her bed, her arms in front of her, as if she was praying. They ran the rope from her wrists between her legs to her ankles, and they gagged her too. They tied Nancy to her bed. They put her arms behind her, and they didn't hogtie her, and they also didn't gag her. Perry Smith thought they looked uncomfortable, so he put a pillow under Nancy's and Kenyon's head so they would be more comfortable. They looked around, and they couldn't find a safe anywhere. The two didn't wear masks, but it's doubtful the family would have been able to identify them. They'd never seen them before. They'd never been to Holcomb. Smith and Hickok could have left the cutters bound and gagged and walked away, but they didn't. They argued for a while and finally decided it would be best not to leave any witnesses. Perry Smith used the hunting knife to cut Herb Clutter's throat. Then he took the shotgun and shot him in the head. Smith later said that he thought Herb Clutter was a nice gentleman, very polite. He said, and I thought that, right up until the time I cut his throat. He went to an adjoining room in the basement and shot 15-year-old Kenyon in the head. They went upstairs. Bonnie Clutter was tied on the bed, facing them when they walked in the room. Originally, Smith said Hickok shot her. Later, he changed his story and said that Hickok held the flashlight on her while he aimed the shotgun and pulled the trigger. 
That left Nancy. They went to her room. Hickok wanted to rape her, but Smith stopped him and said, If you do that, I'll kill you. Then one of them shot her in the head. They left the house. They didn't have a safe. They didn't have $10,000. The only thing that they found in the house that they took with them was Kenyon's transistor radio, a pair of binoculars, and $40. They left four bodies. The next day, on Sunday, the Clutters didn't show up at the Methodist Church where they were faithful members. Afterwards, one of Nancy's friends came to the house looking for her. She knew the door would be open. It always was. She began to have a feeling of foreboding as she went into the kitchen and saw that there were no breakfast dishes on the table. She began calling their names and finally went into Nancy's room and let out a blood-curdling scream as she ran from the house. On Monday, the Finney County Sheriff asked the Kansas Bureau of Investigation to take over the crime scene. Enter the head of the KBI for Southwest Kansas, Alvin Dewey. Dewey knew Herb Clutter and, in fact, considered him one of his best friends. Dewey originally said that the murders must have been the work of a psychopathic killer. What he didn't reveal was that he thought it also must have been an inside job. He felt Herb Clutter must have known the killer. He found it inconceivable that Herb would have let his family be tied up in their beds without putting up a terrific fight. Herb was a strong man, 48 years old, agile, and used to hard work. It must have been somebody that he knew, someone that he trusted. He thought, Dewey did, that it might have been a disgruntled farmhand. So he began looking into all the people who worked for Herb or had worked for him. He also looked at Nancy's boyfriend. While they seemed to get along together, Herb was not happy about the relationship. They were Methodists, and Nancy's boyfriend was Catholic. Herb had been pressuring Nancy to break up with him. Maybe that was the motive. While Alvin Dewey was pursuing the local angle, there were new developments in Lansing at the penitentiary. Floyd Wells read about the murder and also about a reward that had been offered. So he contacted the warden and said, hey, I might know who did this. He gave them Dick Hickok's name. The FBI passed this on to the KBI. At first, Alvin Dewey didn't think it credible. He was still pursuing the local angle. Meanwhile, Smith and Hickok drove back to Kansas City. In New York, Truman Capote saw an article about the murders on the back page of the New York Times. He was searching for a new story for the New Yorker magazine and convinced his editor to let him go to Kansas and research the murder. He thought it would make a great whodunit. But he knew that in order to get the story, he would have to convince the local people in a small Kansas town to talk to him. And Capote was realistic enough to know that wouldn't be easy. You see, Truman Capote didn't look at all like them. He didn't talk like them with his high-pitched voice. He didn't act like them. He didn't seem to have much in common with them. In the late 1950s, Truman Capote was really someone who was pretty rare. He was an openly gay man. 
And because of this, in small-town, religious Kansas, he knew that it would be hard to gain their trust. So he convinced a childhood friend to accompany him. Her name was Nell Harper Lee. Yes, that Harper Lee. The author who would later write To Kill a Mockingbird. She joined him in Kansas. They began making their way around town, talking to people. Nell bringing them pies and small gifts. And slowly the people began to lose their reticence and began to share what they knew about the Clutter family. And as the FBI continued their investigation, there was one piece of evidence that they didn't share with the public. A crime scene photographer got a picture of a faint outline of a boot stained with blood, and the boot had a diamond-shaped pattern on the bottom. One of Dewey's investigators, meanwhile, was finding out a few other things about Herb Clutter that didn't exactly match what people around town were telling Truman Compote and Nell Lee. He found information that Clutter may have been having an affair with a local married woman, and that there were more than a few people around town who had crossed him and come up on the short end of the stick. Hickok and Smith left Kansas and traveled to Mexico. They hitchhiked back to Kansas City, then on to Omaha. They stole a car in Iowa and drove to Florida then on to Las Vegas, supporting themselves with petty crimes and forged checks. They eventually ended up in Las Vegas, where they were arrested on December 30th, six weeks after the murders. The bloody boot was still in the stolen car, as was the knife and the shotgun. Capote originally thought that the murder would never be solved and that he could use it as a basis for a story. When word broke that the killers had been arrested, he decided to shift his narratives to include their stories as well. Hickok and Smith soon confessed, though there is still some doubt as to who actually pulled the trigger. Smith admitted to killing Herb and Kenyon, but originally said Hickok killed the women. He later changed his story, saying that he, Smith, actually killed all four of them. He said that he did this because he knew Hickok's mother, and it knew it would break her heart to think that her son had actually killed the two women. The pair was tried in Garden City, Kansas. They were tried together, and under Kansas law at the time, they were not allowed to enter an insanity plea. The McNaughton rule stated that a person could only be considered insane if they were unable to distinguish right and wrong at the time of the crime. No psychologist could testify to that. In fact, Smith and Hickok were never even examined by a certified psychologist. The jury took less than four hours to find them both guilty. They were convicted and they were sentenced to hang. Capote eventually talked to both Hickok and Smith. He was a frequent visitor to their cells in Lansing, Kansas, and he got to know them both. And in fact, some people believe that he formed an intimate, though not physical, relationship with Perry Smith. The two certainly had some things in common. They were about the same size. They both had abusive fathers. They were both bullied as children. Some people thought that Capote saw in Smith how his life could have turned out. The book portrayed Smith in a very sympathetic, 
some would say too sympathetic light. Capote was present at the hearings and at the hangings, though people who were there said that he left the death chamber in tears after Hickok was executed and wasn't able to return to witness his friend Perry Smith die. He eventually finished his writing in the mid-60s, and it was first published as a serial in the New Yorker magazine, then in book form. Capote called it a true crime novel. He did take quite a few liberties, imagining what people must have been thinking. He also fictionalized certain conversations, placing people where they couldn't have been, saying things that they later said they didn't say. The book was a bestseller, but it left many people in Holcomb and many surviving members of the Clutter family cold. They felt that Capote glorified two psychopathic killers at the expense of the family. Who were the Clutters? Just an average Kansas farm family who met their fate on the road to Holcomb. Thank you, Dad. That was so good. I had never really heard that story, and um, I haven't read In Cold Blood or seen the Truman Capote movie or anything, so I was really happy to hear that story, even though it's a horribly sad one. But I do want to go over some of the fashion uh, from the characters in our story. Uh, so this is the part of our podcast called Trends of the Crime, and it is sponsored by Style a la Mode. And this is when I will tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue during the time of the crime. So I'll start with the Clutter family and I'll start with the ladies. So circle dresses and shift dresses were popular at this time. But as we know, our family is in Kansas. And as I know all too well, trends come last to little old us in Kansas. <laughs> um, so while they were wearing the circle skirts, uh, they had like button down tops and it was very, um, you know who they looked like? <laughs> Tell me who. <laughs> they look like old photos of Nanny and Aunt Beulah. And these are my, it's my mom's mom and my mom's aunt. Like their hair was the same, everything. And where were all of your mom's relatives born? Kansas. L would you look at that? Even the same glasses and everything. In fact, Western Kansas is where they were all from. Well, not surprising because they all look the same. <laughs> uh, Bonnie Clutter, the mother, was often seen wearing a circle skirt with a short-sleeved button-up tucked into it. And her daughters were seen in similar clothes as well as horn-rimmed glasses and Mary Jane heeled shoes. And their hair was short and tightly curled. I can see the curling iron my grandma used and the rollers that she used, so... I imagine that was the same thing. Um, how would you describe that haircut that Nanny had that I'm talking about? <laughs> well, I always just called it a Nanny haircut. <laughs> yep. We'll, we'll post a picture of the family. You'll see what we mean. Of the Clutter family. You'll see what we mean. <laughs> and the men in the family, I'll describe their style now. Herb Clutter wore long-sleeve button-down shirts with slacks and a belt. Pretty, you know, boring. Uh, he also wore the classic 1960s glasses. He reminds me of the man in the Zodiac sketch. And all men at this time looked like this, uh, just with those glasses. 
we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Everyone thinks their dad is the Zodiac because everyone, every man looked like that sketch. <laughs> um, and then Kenyon wore slim fit trousers, white shirts, and sweaters. And he wore his hair in a crew cut and had the same style of glasses as his dad's. Our murderers, uh, Hickok and Smith, these two were not nearly as well off as the Clutter family. They wore button-down shirts, jeans, and utility jackets. And the men also had sleeves of tattoos and hairstyles similar to Danny in Greece was the best way I could describe the hair. What do you think? That's exactly what I thought of when I first saw the picture, uh, particularly of Smith. Yes. Kind of has a little duck tail. Mm -hmm. uh, looked like there was quite a bit of grease in his hair. Yep. Um, you know, back when I was just a, a lad of five or six, uh, I always wanted a crew cut myself back then. And they had this, uh, this product called butch wax that you would just put in your hair and it would make your hair stiff as a board and it would stand up. So we'd go in and ask for a flat top or a butch haircut. That's funny. Of course, butch has taken on a completely different yes. meaning in 2020. And we should tell our listeners who, who know us in person that you did have hair back then. I did indeed. <laughs> he had beautiful hair, but sadly, it's okay. Um, well, that's all I have for fashion. Do you have anything to add, Dad? I, I really don't. All right. Well, we will get into our discussion. Well, let's get talking about this one. First, will you tell us about the cocktail you chose? Well, I chose uh, one of the classic 50s cocktails. Uh, around this time, gin was probably still the spirit of choice. So today's cocktail is the Tom Collins. We can talk a little bit about the history of that when we post our video. Uh, the Collins is, uh, I guess we could really call it just spiked lemonade. It's uh, lemon juice with some sugar. And, uh, and some gin served in a tall glass, any tall glass, uh, we, we now call a Collins glass. So, uh, again, just one of these 50s uh, classic cocktails. Sounds pretty yummy. I'm excited to try this during our video. I think you'll like it better than the martini. You made a, you made a face yeah. uh, at the martini again last week. I like a lot of things better than martinis. So I, Martinis are okay. They're just very strong, you know? Well, there are all sorts of martinis we could have, too. You know, we can make chocolate martinis, strawberry mm -hmm. martinis, elderflower martinis, etc., etc. So maybe we'll do that someday. Well, all the rich people in one of my favorite reality shows, Below Deck and Below Deck Met, they like espresso martinis. Right. We haven't done anything in the 80s yet, have we? We will, though. I know. Our season finale. I'm not going to say what it is. Good, good plan. Well, <laughs> maybe next year when we do some 80s crimes, okay. uh, we can make some 80s cocktails, yeah. you know, more of the uh, more of the fluffy stuff. Sounds good. I bet I'll like that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned at the end of your story that Truman Capote called In Cold Blood a true crime story. And that was the beginning of true crime, correct? Yeah, I was. Uh, I think, actually, didn't he call it a true crime novel? Yes, right. Which I think was his way of saying that it's based on something that really happened, but he did take a few uh, liberties with the facts. Mm -hmm. So it reads like a novel. Right. Uh, 
I know I had to read it when I was a senior in high school. And uh, first time I had heard of In Cold Blood or anything, and I'm reading it, and I'm just thinking to myself, uh, this this reads like just a mystery novel that I've read. So Capote was a was a great writer for mm-hmm. a time. This was probably uh, the height of, of his fame and career. Someone posted in our Facebook group. It may have been Jackie or Jay, Jackie Horde or Jay. Cofell. Um, yes. Um, hi Jay. Hi Jay. Hi Jackie. It may have been one of them. They said that, and if it was someone else, I apologize. Someone said that this writing this story really kind of got in his head, and he had trouble writing after this. He did. He yeah. did. He he went in a long downward spiral after this, mm. and a lot of people think that may have been due to the the close relationship that he had formed, particularly with Perry Smith. Right. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't see anything about that. So tell us more about that. Do you know any more? Well, as, as I understand it, um, he he admired Perry Smith's intelligence. He did think that he was he was psychotic, maybe maybe a, a sociopath, but uh, he uh, Perry Smith wrote poetry. He wrote stories. He, he was very well-spoken, and a lot of people theorize that, that Capote saw a little bit of himself mm. in Perry Smith. They both came from broken homes. They were both short. Um, they were both bullied when they were growing up. They were abused by their father. And uh, some people think, you know, that, that when he looked at Perry Smith, he thought, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I could have turned out that way. Mm-hmm. And Perry Smith was given sympathetic treatment in in the book, so much so that it it upset a lot of people in Holcomb, and uh, upset some of the surviving uh, members of the Clutter family. They they felt that they were trying to turn the person who murdered their their relatives and their friends into almost a hero. Wow, hmm. I'm I'm excited to read the book. I've when friends of mine found out we were doing this, they told me I really need to read it. So I'm going to, I don't think I had, I, if I was supposed to read it in school, I didn't. So, (laughs) but I don't think we were assigned it. Um, So the book in cold blood by Truman Capote, it was published in 1966 and detailed the murder of the clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. And to this day, this novel is the second, is it considered a novel then? No, it's a, it's considered to be nonfiction. nonfiction. Okay, so this nonfiction book is the second best-selling true crime book in history, behind Helter Skelter, which discussed the Manson family murders. However, as as Dad talked about, the book is criticized for being overdramatic or bending the truth to fit the narrative, and uh, apparently also because of the uh, the bias toward Perry Perry Smith. Right. So, not all of our listeners are from Kansas. Where the heck is Holcomb, Kansas? I didn't even know. Holcomb's way out in the southwest part of the state. It's near the Colorado and Oklahoma state lines. So, you and I are in Kansas City. It's probably a good three to 400 miles from here. 
the nearest large town is Garden City, and Garden City's not all that large either. It's in it's in Finney County, mm-hmm. so not not that far away from Dodge City. You've probably heard mm-hmm. of Dodge City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Garden City was the closest city I recognized on the map. Have we ever been to Holcomb? I know that that at some point we drove through there. Now I don't know if you existed at that time. <laughs> But I think I, I think all four of us, you, your sister, and and your mom and I, on the way to New Mexico one time, mm-hmm. cut across Southwest Kansas, and we went through Holcomb. And I, I remember commenting on it. I didn't. Uh, we didn't go try to find the house though. Okay. I doubt Allie was with us though, because she's never been to Taos. That's true. And she never lets us forget it. That's true. <laughs> Sorry, Allie had to throw that in there. <laughs> Just to put into perspective how small um, Holcomb is, the population in 2018 was just 2,084 people. Mm-hmm. What's the po- We're in Lawrence right now recording. What's the population of Lawrence? Do you know approximately 100? I'm not sure. I may not be. I was way. thinking it was like 80,000 maybe. Let me look. I know Olathe, which is where I live, is 130,000. Lawrence, Kansas population, 97,286. Close. So close to 100. So, yeah, that is pretty dang small. I don't like going to the middle of nowhere. So in these small towns, no one locks their doors. Everyone knows everyone. The mindset is bad stuff doesn't happen here. And then it does. And it's funny, just this past weekend, I was visiting my my best friend, Stephanie, with our best friend, Deanna. Hello, ladies. And we were in a small central Kansas town. We were talking about how you don't have to lock the car doors, but I had my purse in the car. So I wanted the door locked and it was like, no one's going to break into your car. And I was like, it doesn't happen till it happens, you know? So I, even even today in these small towns, the mindset is, it's okay. Nothing's going to happen. No one's going to steal your purse. So I thought that was interesting. Even today. No one did steal my purse, so it's fine. All right, let's talk about the Clutter family home. It was really big. It was a 14-room farmhouse, and people would stop to admire it if they were driving through. And the family had it built in 1948 for $40,000, which was approximately $360,000 at the time. That even seems low for a home that big, don't you think? Oh, well, that would be, yeah, I, I, I've seen pictures of the house. I would think today a house like that would probably be up in the four to $500,000 so range. Like 500, yeah. Plus there was a lot of land, too. Right. Yeah, I, I thought that was, even the adjusted number seemed pretty low. But then again, you are in the middle of absolute nowhere, mm-hmm. so everything's a little cheaper over there. Land is cheaper, and yeah. Okay, so Nancy was the daughter who was murdered and she was 16 years old and she was the only family member shot in the back of her head and the only one who wouldn't have been looking at her killer. Do we think that's because, I mean, Dick was obviously attracted to her or in some sort of way. Maybe that's why. I'm it's been it's been decades since I've seen the movie but if I remember the movie correctly when when they went into her room to shoot her um I think it was Perry told her to turn her head so she wouldn't have mm. to 
so she wouldn't actually have to see the gun when he pulled the trigger. You know, again, the the weird part about this, these were brutal murders, but Perry Smith did things like put pillows under their heads while they were tied up because he said they looked uncomfortable. Uh, He said Herb Clutter was a nice man. I thought so right up until I slit his throat. Um, Telling Nancy to turn her head so she didn't actually have to see the gun. Um, Just a very, very brutal, evil, but still strange man. That's what I remember from the movie on why, why her head was turned. Well, I in one of the videos I watched about this, um, Perry was really upset that Dick wouldn't let him leave until the murders were done. So this person said it was almost like he was just doing it to get out. And he was so angry, you know, so he was murdering these people. And he was just so angry at Dick because he wanted to leave and he didn't want to be there. So... I don't know. Which begs the question, why didn't he shoot Dick as well? Yeah, I don't know. Crazy. That is so sad. Oh, that gives me chills. Just like putting yourself in that position. That's in Nancy's position, I mean. Um, You did talk about Bobby, the boyfriend. Um, Yeah, it's funny that Herb didn't, he liked him, but he wouldn't really approve of the relationship thought that was interesting and because religion was so important or denomination, I guess, Would it be religion or denomination in this case. Oh, I would always call it religious differences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was real back then. Mm -hmm. And even, even today, today, I know when, when your grandmother found out that uh, your sister was, was dating a Roman Catholic, she was, she was very, very upset mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I see his point. Like, why are you dating if I'm never going to let you get married? You know, because of these religious differences. But obviously, when you're young, you're like, that doesn't matter. So, yeah. Crazy. Um, but because Bobby was her boyfriend, he was uh, questioned. And because the because Herb didn't like Bobby, like a lot of things pointed to Bobby. Um, however, it became clear very quickly that he had nothing to do with it, with any of the murders. But the fact that he was questioned did make the small town hate him, and he had to change schools in a different town. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. and they even said it's clear he didn't do it, but everyone still, I guess, was suspicious and was saying things about him. So. Yeah, and in fact, he uh, he has uh, since started a a charitable foundation in the Clutter uh, family name. Hmm. He's alive. Mm-hmm. What year was this? Oh, yeah, he'd still be alive. Mm-hmm. He's probably in his seventies now. Okay. Okay. Um, one possible motive I didn't hear you talk about was about this life insurance policy. I hadn't heard of that one either. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of silly when you think about it. So, uh, while the police were trying to figure out who committed these murders, they were obviously looking at possible motives. And one that dad did not mention was that the day before the murders, Herb took out a $40,000 life insurance policy. And, uh, 
there are two there were two surviving daughters who weren't living at home and they were the heiresses to that life insurance so one possible motive was did they kill their family just to get that money um but the theory was quickly disputed and it was just a crazy coincidence that he happened to do that and then the next day four members of his of the family got murdered um and they they figured this wasn't a motive because the new policy had been in the works for months, but Herb just happened to sign it the day before. So it wasn't like he just up and decided to go get life insurance. So now a couple there there was another uh, another motive that's been floating around, and this gained some credence a few years ago when another book was published. Uh, when the uh, the notes taken by one of the other investigators were finally released uh, to the media under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, it was this uh, Alvin Dewey, who was the lead investigator, had some some other people working under him. And one of these uh, other investigators, uh, when they got to his notes, again, they found that, that he had, I don't know if it was evidence or just uh, rumor, that Herb Clutter had been having an affair around town with a married woman. And... Uh, they were working on the theory that maybe this was a murder for hire, mm. that somebody was so upset with, with her clutter that uh, he decided just to kill the whole family mm. that night and make it look like a robbery. Mm -hmm. um, that theory actually gained a, a little bit of credence uh, when uh, Dick Hickox uh, autobiography came out and we can call it an autobiography he had just written it on on notebook paper but um, he claimed while he was in prison that he had been paid five thousand dollars to kill clutter by a man named roberts no first name no details other than that but he claimed that's why they did it that they were supposed to get paid $5,000 to kill her clutter. Um, of course, we also know that uh, Dick Hickok was a, a pathological mm -hmm. liar, so I doubt that's true. But that that is something that some people at least have said, you know, maybe that's why this happened. Maybe it wasn't a safe with 10000 in it. I don't believe that. I don't either. <laughs> at all. <laughs> Well, some, Beverly was one of the surviving daughters, and something, I guess you could call it some sort of light and good thing that happened out of this. Uh, she was engaged to be married later that year, and police advised her at the funeral that she should change her name as soon as she could, so before she had the wedding, uh, in case, and this was before they knew who the killers were. And they were worried that the killer or killers might track her down by her last name. So she decided instead to just get married that weekend because all of her extended family was in town for the funeral. So it was obviously horribly sad that her, the majority of her immediate family could not be there, but at least she was able to get married with the family that she did still have. It's kind of a cute little thing but still sad. All right, so let's get into discussing a little more about the killers themselves. So Dick Hickok went to Olathe High School. He did. He was an eagle. Which is Olathe North. It used to be Olathe High. Right. 
I went to Olathe South. So North was my football rivals, but it's all right. North is cool too. I'm mature now. I don't care about high school rivalries. <laughs> um, so he did have good grades and he got into college for engineering, but his family did not have enough money to send him to college. So he got a good job in Kansas City, got married, bought a nice car, did the whole thing. And he had a really bright future until, not super surprising, he got in a bad car accident that gave him a bad head injury. It is just insane how often this makes people, changes people, isn't mm -hmm. it? It does. It does. All the time. It's crazy. He was never the same after that. He started committing petty crimes. He left his wife for an older woman, and he ended up in Lansing for stealing firearms, the Lansing prison. And something else interesting I heard. So when he got married, I believe he was 19 around there, but his wife was 16. And so he was always interested in younger women. Um, but as he got older, the women he was interested in stayed the same age. So as he became like 30-year-old man, he still was attracted to 16-year-old women. Or girls. Girls. Right. And Nancy Clutter was 16. 16. Yeah. So that explains that. And I, I wonder if that had to do with the car accident too, or if he would have been like that anyway. I don't know. So He also had three kids. Mm -hmm. um, I think two with his wife and one with another woman. Who's the other? Oh, the older woman? Or some other some, woman? Someone else. Hmm. Yep. Uh, Perry Smith was born in Huntington, Nevada to rodeo performing parents. It's pretty cool. Uh, his father was Irish and his mother was Native American. However, he had a volatile childhood. His father was abusive and his mother took the kids um, to San Francisco to escape their father, but she was an alcoholic. So the, the environment wasn't much, if any, better. Um, and Smith was first arrested on his eighth Eight birthday. Do you know why? I don't know why. I, I didn't catch that, no. That's crazy. I didn't know you could get arrested at eight years old. Back then you could. Huh. But now you can't. Mm -hmm. They don't arrest you. Okay. Um, anyway, after his mother died, she eventually died of, uh, I believe she choked on her own vomit, I believe. Yes. Perry and his siblings were shuffled through orphanages and were abused, which also happens Terribly too often. Still. Um, he went to live with his father, but that wasn't a good fit because he did not. He had a lot of resentment toward his father, obviously. Uh, so Perry joined the army and served in the Korean War. And he was eventually honorably discharged from the army and bought himself a motorcycle. And guess what? He ended up in a motorcycle accident, too. But he didn't get a head injury. He just had to spend six months in the hospital and his legs were permanently disabled. Um, and then he eventually gets arrested again and ends up in Lansing prison as well. And he and Hickok quickly made a close bond. So that's kind of how the two came together. We already talked about in the story, the verdict and how the men were charged and their fate. Um, but after all of this, all the way in 2012, uh, Hickox and Smith's bodies were exhumed 
in the hopes of solving a 53-year-old cold case in Florida. The Walker family was murdered, and police thought that Hickok and Smith may have been guilty of these murders as well. So, as Dad mentioned, Hickok and Smith uh, went to Florida after Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. And they were known to have spent Christmas in Florida in 1959, right around when the murders took place. Um, they were given a polygraph about the murders shortly after they happened, but they passed, air quotes, passed, because to today's polygraph standards, the results would have been inconclusive. They would not have passed today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the DNA on all the bodies was too old and contaminated to come to a solid conclusion as to whether or not Hickok and Smith killed the Walker family. Yeah, they they stayed not too far away from, from the Walker home. Um, the Walkers were, were a lot younger than the Clutters. Uh, the, the man and wife were, I think, 23 and 24, maybe 24 and 25. Um, Mrs. Walker was raped uh, before she was murdered. The two children, I believe, were three and one. And... Uh, they all four of the people were shot plus the the small baby the one-year-old was also drowned um so uh you know we'll we'll never know i know that the the sheriff in osprey county florida still uh considers hickok and smith to be likely suspects but i'm sure this case will never be proven if the if the dna is not good Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly could have happened. Uh, there were there there. I've read stories or or seen accounts that as they were traveling across Florida, they were joking with each other. Uh, not Florida, traveling around the country, they were joking with each other about uh, you know killing other people, raping women, etc. So you know who knows. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know. About this, if they did it or not. I mean, as you say, of course, there's possibility. Um, I was actually trying to find the episode that this reminds me of for on uh, My Favorite Murder that I listened to recently, where I can't remember who was murdered, but it was thought that maybe uh, Jeffrey Dahmer did it because he was in this place at this time. But that was such a stretch because... I don't know. If I could remember what it was, it would make more sense. But basically, Karen said, I think that we tend, as humans, we just want things to be solved. So we tend to grasp at any sort of straws that we can to solve it to make ourselves feel better. Well, it reminds me of the Black Dahlia killing. Mm-hmm. How the, uh, uh, the doctor's son felt that his dad killed the Black Dahlia, and there seemed to be good evidence or at least circumstantial evidence that that could have happened but then he just went off the deep end and started blaming his dad for dozens of other murders even being the zodiac killer right kind of reminds me of that that if there's an unsolved murder and these people were nearby and they had the means they probably did it and we'll, (laughs) we'll just never know right i wouldn't be shocked if they did it right but we won't know no no (laughs) which sucks but sometimes you just you don't know so well, that's been the Clutter family, our, I think our first Kansas murder of our podcast. Correct? I believe you're right. I believe you're right. And then because we made you guys 
wait a whole week. We're giving you two episodes this week. So next up, we have The Stoll Cemetery, which is not a crime, but it's scary. So I wanted to talk about it. And Halloween is coming. And Halloween is coming. Um, Stoll is very close to where we are sitting right now, isn't it? It is. How close? Oh, well, it's... What, 10 miles maybe ah, oh between it's between lawrence and topeka on highway 40 i just found out my husband drives by it every day so to give you a quick uh a quick info why this cemetery is so scary it is said to have the seven gates to hell in it so we're going to talk all about that in the next episode so keep listening bye bye